Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 180. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 180 you're listening to. My guest today is Bobby Osinski, producer, engineer, author, coach, podcast host, uh, man of many talents. Uh, Bobby is well known for his books, uh, such as the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, the Recording Engineer's Handbook, Social Media for Musicians. Uh, He's also known for his uh, coaching programs, uh, his speaking I know him, of course, from the Inner Circle podcast, which to this day I still listen to and really, really enjoy. Uh, Bobby always seems to know everybody. He always seems to have uh, his finger on the pulse of what is happening in pro audio, in the music industry, and uh, he's a great source of information. So I really, really am honored to have him on today. So Bobby Osinski coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. I don't know if you've heard, but YouTube is announcing a new channel, new music subscription channel, that is, called YouTube Music. That, of course, is going to raise a lot of questions. So uh, rather than trying to uh, give you the entire uh, explanation, I will include a link in the show notes for you to check out yourself and get those questions answered. But uh, yeah, should prove interesting. Now let's head over to uh, gearslits.com to the uh, new product alerts, and I'll tell you about a couple key uh, things that have come out recently that you might want to check out. Um, looks like SSL has released native version 6 plugins. Uh, they're doing a subscription thing as well. I think it's $14.99 a month, $15.99 a month, something like that. Uh, Nugent Audio just released their new Sigmod Utility Toolbox plugin. That's uh, it's kind of a signal flow modification uh, plug-in. Personas has released Studio One version 4. It's going to make a lot of people happy. Uh, Slate releases VMR 2.0, the modular channel strip. And uh, Tascam unveils the 202 Mark II version 2 dual cassette deck with USB. That's right, cassettes. Cassettes seem to be making more of a comeback than ever. Um, and of course, Universal Audio announces UAD2 Live Rack Matty Effects Processor. All that can be found over at uh, New Product Alerts over there at Gearsluts.com. And speaking of Universal Audio, make sure you stop on over there and check out the new UAD2 Live Rack Matty Effects Processor while you're at it. That's at uaudio.com. As I mentioned on past shows, of course, I'm going to be traveling this summer to Europe. I'll be in Amsterdam, London, Paris, and Normandy. If you think that there's any people that I should interview while I'm there, please head on over to workingclassaudio.com. And of course, we have a guest suggestion form there that you can fill out. That's uh, it's one, two, three. It looks like it's, yeah, it's on the top there. It's uh, fourth from the right, fourth from the left, I should say. Uh, click on that. That'll take you to the form. And you can, uh, of course, fill that out and uh, let me know about the person that you'd like me to interview that you think I should interview and I will uh, follow up and hopefully I can uh, get to them and add them to the show. So workingclassaudio.com. Also, if you uh, get the podcast, of course, through other means and not through the website, be sure and stop by the website and check it out in general. That's like I said, workingclassaudio.com. And of course, check us out on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and YouTube. Yeah, check that out. All right, let's get to it. Bobby Osinski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. It's really uh, an honor to have you on because uh, your podcast, The Inner Circle, uh, has been a source of inspiration and guidance for me leading up to uh, the creation of the Working Class Audio Podcast. With all due respect to everybody I know who do podcasts, your podcast is the one podcast I think I probably more consistently listened to than any other podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It it, it came about, I I refused to do a podcast for a long, long time, but I don't know if you listen to Audio Nowcast at all. 
Audio Nowcast. I don't. Okay, Audio Nowcast has been on for, I think it's starting its 13th year, and it's a roundtable of audio geeks from different disciplines. So I came on about halfway through as a guest, and they asked me to stay on. And what ended up happening was, and, and of course, there's no responsibility. I just show up and do it. And I saw what it took to actually put the podcast together. I thought, I don't want to do this. And then a listener from that who actually specializes in podcasts, he came back to me and he says, I I'll do all the dirty work. You just do all of the interviews. And I'm happy to get it going for you. So that's how it started. And he did that for about, oh, 80 or 90 episodes. And then he... he decided it wasn't in his best interest to keep going and it actually worked out better because since i've taken it over i think the audio has gotten better because i know how to do it <laughs> <laughs> i've always gone to your podcast as a source of kind of like a, a news source of what's going on in in not only the the music world space but the recording world spaces you seem to straddle this line of you've got you know, the music thing, your finger on the pulse of what's going on there, your finger on the pulse of what's going on in, in recording, but you also can talk marketing and you can talk business and you, you really can bring both sides of the glass together as well as the spaces outside of the studio. Thank you. I'm glad you, you think that. I try to do that sometimes not as successfully as I like, but what ended up happening was somewhere along the line, why I thought I'd do it, but I thought I'd write a business book, a music business book, which at the time was uh, Music 3.0, I guess. I thought, well, I can't have all this music business stuff on my regular blog because it just doesn't fit. Hmm. So then I decided to do a separate blog. So now I've done two blogs every day for, I don't know, six or seven years that are separate and equal as a result, I think of two heads all the time. I'm thinking in the production world and I'm thinking in the music business world and always collecting articles and collecting, you know, sources of material for both. As a result, I, when it comes to the podcast, a lot, I try not to duplicate anything. So if it's been on the blog, I tried not to put it on the podcast. So I, you know, look for new material to go on there. Not always easy. <laughs> As you well know, sometimes, you, you know, you're trying to do something and um, you go, well, this looked easier than it <laughs> ends up being. But thank you. I'm I'm glad you, you enjoy it. I, I really do. And, and not only that, for, you know, anybody in the audience who's listening who doesn't know Bobby's work, you got to go to bobbyosinski.com. He's a producer, an engineer, an author, a coach, a podcast host. You've got about 24, 25 books, it appears. You've also got a series of uh courses that uh, uh, my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, is always talking about. I uh, can't remember if it's the mixing tricks one or if I'm getting the name wrong there or, or right. But Well, there's 101 mixing tricks. That's it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I also do the music mixing primer, which is a newer course. And it's all the things that we as mixers do and know inherently, but don't necessarily communicate to people. And it dawned on me somewhere along the line that, wow, there's a lot of things that mixers do that they just never talk about that are really important. Fundamentals. That's what that's about, that uh, music mixing primer. I've also done, a, you know, some music business courses and some things for lynda.com. So, I, you know, I've done quite a lot of, of online courses in the pro and, and I still continue to do more. Uh, it takes a lot of time as you probably know, to do stuff like this online. But that being said, if something comes out that's pretty good, people do respond one way or the other. I mean, they'll tell you <laughs> if you got it right or if you got it wrong, and and you know instantly. With the book, it's a little different. Sometimes you write a book and you don't really hear for a long, long time whether you got it right or you got it wrong or or just were you know, able to communicate the information in a way that people not only could find useful which i think is the most important thing you, you you want them to enjoy what they're what they're reading or watching but you want them to get use and immediate use out of it too so that takes some thought everything that i've seen of you like I've, I've watched a little bit of the linda stuff that you've done just the way you present it seems just like it comes like a second nature to you it's just you appear to do it effortlessly i'm sure there's a lot that goes into that though thank you matt i appreciate that I, i'm 
I mean, that's what you strive for, obviously. One of the things that's always driven me, well, actually two things in all of this. The first thing is I'm trying to learn stuff too. So what drove my first book, which was the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, was I was a pretty good engineer, but I wasn't a good mixer. I was not a good mixer. Hmm. And I knew great mixers. I knew all the best guys in town. So I figured, you know, if I have a problem with mixing, I bet there's a lot of other people that just can't grasp this as well. So I went to all of my friends and said, what do you do? How do you do it? So I interviewed them all. And then I learned a lot myself. I, you know, I, I think I've become pretty good as a result of talking to people all the time and getting, and, and everybody's always open because they always say the same thing. You can't do it like me anyway. I'll <laughs> tell you whatever you want, but you, you know, you, you're not going to do it like me. And it's true. But after a while, you pick a bunch of, of things up. So from the standpoint that I kind of figure I'm an everyman, I'm hopefully an everyman. If there's something that I want to know, I kind of assume there's a lot of other people that feel the same way. And it's been like that so far. The other thing is I also like to think of myself as an archivist somewhat. And the reason why is a little less so now, but for a while there was a lot of industrial knowledge, so to speak, that was threatening to disappear into the ether. And I wanted to capture that before that happened. Hmm. So in other words, you had a lot of these classic guys that, that were recording in a certain way and all of a sudden recording was changing so much. And it's like, I want to make sure that at least somewhere there's a depository of this particular knowledge before it goes away and becomes hearsay. You know, well, oh, they used to do it like that. Uh, like the whole NS10 thing, you know, why was there tissue paper over the NS10? And the real reason versus what everybody, you know, has come to think, it's changed so many iterations. And it's like, I don't want that to happen. I, as much as I can, I want to get the real story on why people do things and why they were successful at doing it. That's why I write books. A lot of it is I want to capture that information before it kind of goes away or gets subverted somehow, you know? Yeah. I do know a little bit about your early start. I know you, you went to Berkeley School of Music, and I believe you also have uh, some bit of education uh, in electronics. Yeah. Can you take me back to that, those early years, maybe college years, mm. or those pivotal moments where you thought, I'm going to get involved in music and or recording? Well, it was even before that. I was a working musician when I was in high school. I was playing four nights a week when I was 15 years old in clubs. So I, I knew early on, this is what I want to do. And now I was lucky enough to come up in an era where there was tons of clubs all over the place. And this is before drinking and driving, um, which definitely changed music in, in ways that people don't understand. It's very profound. But that being said, there are lots and lots of opportunities to play. And I was making terrific money while I was in high school. And I was always into electronics, so I had all all these electronic books that I was studying to figure out what is impedance and, you know, all those things. 600-ohm termination, why do you do that? Of course, we don't do it anymore, but there, back then it was a big deal. I just planned I was going to be a musician for the rest of my life, but I did want to know why all these electrons were, you know, where they were flowing <laughs> from my guitar to the amplifier and from the microphone to the sound system and how does that work? So that led me to pursue electronics, you know, schooling in electronics. And I didn't spend much time in school, unfortunately, because I was gigging. I was touring. <laughs> I paid people to take tests for me. I showed up on occasion, you know, one of those things. And I just thought that forever I would be a musician. And I was for the first part of my life, big part. What stopped it was uh, I did a tour that I just thought, there's something more to life than this. I was already in studio a lot. And I've, I've always been in the studio a lot, but I was an active musician. But the day I gave that up as being, an, in my mind, I'm no longer a musician, I am a studio person, an engineer, a producer. That was one of the happiest days of my life, I have to say. <laughs> How so? The pressure was off. The pressure was off to be a professional musician, which was always difficult. But it's difficult, especially when you have to make a living at it. Mm. And you're taking gigs that you don't like to take. 
and you're, maybe you're playing music that you don't really like. And, you know, the whole thing is, well, I want to do my own music and you try to do your own music, but you don't have enough time because you're gigging and it was all, you know, it's easier said than done. It's never been easy. And certainly I appreciate when, when young musicians want to do that because it's not an easy thing. And especially touring. Touring is, is fun when you're 21. By the time you get to 27, 28, you go, uh, uh, I'll do this again, you know, and you hit 30 and you go, oh, wait, there's more to life than this. Unless you're, you're of course, uh, on an echelon that I never reached. So, I mean, that was a big part of it. Then I just decided I was going to be in, in a studio for the longest time. And, you know, writing was a lark. I mean, that's kind of an interesting story, how we get into writing. I, I think I was, I was on a tour bus. Mm-hmm. We're waiting to leave. And the bass player walks on. He goes, I just got a job writing for the music paper. Music paper was a, a, a music rag that, you know, out of New York City. It, it, and it was a weekly paper all about the music scene. And for some reason, I thought, you know, if he could do that, I can too. So I called around and I actually got a job. can't say a job. I got an assignment to write something for Mix Magazine. It was my very first writing assignment. And uh, I just found it not that long ago. It was horrible. God, it was, <laughs> it was I, I, you know, I could barely read it. And, and the worst part about it was when it came back, it was so marked up by the editor. I was really upset. And now I look at it and I think, I don't know if the editor made it worse or better, but it's not good. <laughs> you know? Anyway. That was the beginning of it, and uh, then I started to write for all sorts of magazines. I must have wrote for a dozen magazines. Did hundreds of interviews with people, and that's how I began to know everybody in the business. Ah, that's. Uh, I was going to bring that up. You seem to know everybody. That's uh, kind of you say that. I'm not sure that's the case. And, and I get humbled often on that. I, I, let me give you a humbling experience when that's concerned. You know, so, sometimes someone will say everybody in the business knows you and and you begin to believe that and then i did a um a presentation at the last aes in anaheim and it was on social media for musicians something i'm very passionate about the room was filled it it was overflowing which was kind of nice and i thought they're here for me (laughs) then uh you know i put up a screen with all my books uh, you know who has any of these books and there's a couple out of a hundred and then i found out that not uh, hardly any of these people knew me they they were there for the topic, which is very hot. So again, you can be humbled very easily. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, I guess not many people know me as I think. <laughs> I assume everybody knows who you are because you've been at this for so long. Uh, I've had a lot of exposure, uh, you know, between all of it. I, I must admit that it first came from the books, not so much from the articles that I wrote, even though I wrote hundreds of articles. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from the social media. The social media I get into as a way, it was as a branding exercise more than anything. So um, again, I, I was lucky that I knew a lot of the gurus in the business, in, in the social media business. Less so now, but I, I knew them all who gave me pointers, which is you know why the book Social Media Promotion for Musicians came about. It's like, well... I've learned from some really excellent people here, so let me pass this on, pass this knowledge on, because it certainly worked for me. And and it worked branding-wise, and it worked in terms of general familiarity with with my brand. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, social media can be effective. People downplay it, but done well, it certainly can be effective. And and I think uh, I'm the poster child for it. Could I have done it better? Yes, I'm sure. But on the other hand, it, it's done me well. And I like to guide other people in that because uh, I know it, it can be a help to anybody that wants to further their career. You almost have to be involved in one way or another, but there's a ways to do it. And if you don't do the right way, you're going to be a whole lot less effective and spend so much time. That's what none of us want to do. Mm. We don't want to spend our time doing this. Have you ever thought about writing maybe a companion book that would apply to studio owners, engineers? Well, it it applies to everybody. It, okay. And maybe it's the wrong title. It's social media position, a social media promotion for musicians, but it's also for anybody in the music business. It, musicians was a catch-all term. It's probably the wrong one. What I did do, I wrote uh, another book, Social Media Promotion for Small Businesses and Entrepreneurs. 
I thought, well, Hayes is going to take off, you know, because there's nothing like this. And the problem is, you know, you have to spend a, a good amount of time. People know me in the music business, and they didn't know me in the entrepreneurial business. So it was like, this is going to take so much time raising my profile in this I, that, you know, I kind of had to pass on it and say, well, I don't really like that part of the world anyway. I'll go back to <laughs> you know, the part that I like and, and stay in there because there's only, only so much time of the day. So that that was kind of a, you know, you have hits and misses and that was a miss. But a good book, but, you know, a bad, bad premise. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. In in coal country. I, I I grew up in Minersville, Pennsylvania. You can probably guess what the major industry was there. Small uh, town of 5,000 people. I still have family there. I still go back. A lot of really good musicians came out of there. I really, you know, it was a surprising music hotbed for a while. No, nobody that ever really hit big, but... Well, I shouldn't say that. I was in a band called The Other Side, which was very, very big for 10 years before I got with them, actually. And... Bruce Springsteen actually says this, that he was influenced, his stage show was influenced by that band hmm. a lot. Not so much me, because I came in later, but there were some people in there that, that their stage presence was big and, and you know influenced a lot of people as a result. Hmm. So, um, you know, I learned from good people, I have to say. You live in Los Angeles now, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And you've been there for a number of years, I assume. Since uh, 1981. Okay as we discussed before, you're a musician, but you're also a producer and an engineer. Where have you spent the majority of your time in your lifetime? Do you feel like you've spent more time as a, as a producer and an, an engineer or as a musician? Probably more as a musician. Mm -hmm. I still think of myself as a musician first, even though I, I rarely play. I do know it's easy to go down the rabbit hole. If I started again, you know, I, I would, I'd go right down. I'd be right there. I'd be 16 years old again doing it. And that being said, I think I spent most of my time as a musician. And then I was in the studio, like everybody else, spending the long 18-hour days for a long time. And then, um, you know, ending up now where I just do a project or two a year, a production project and maybe a mixing project or two. I'm in the position now, I only take projects that I like mm -hmm. and I think are going to be fun. I don't so much care about the money, although money's good usually. But uh, boy, it better be fun, or I don't want to do it. Yeah. Now, now that doing all these other things afforded me that. Right. If I if I weren't writing books and and doing online courses and, and things like that, I'd be hustling like everybody else, and I'd probably be in the same position as everybody else. Which is, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to make a living uh, as as a musician, as a engineer, as a producer, especially the older you get. Because you, not only do you age out, because you're good at doing one thing, but the rest of the world changes, but you also find that your clients, they don't work as much. So that means you have to go get younger clients, and it's harder for you to get younger clients many times because they, they want to work with people their own age. So, I mean, this has happened forever and ever and ever and ever in every business it's nothing that's new. Mm -hmm. But I see it with my friends now, both musicians and engineers and producers, where you know they, they're not working as much and, and they want to be, definitely like to be. We talk uh, a lot about diversification in an effort to bring in income and, and, and sustain a life in music wherever you know, your role is. So it seems like you've really diversified in a huge way, books and coaching and making records from one side of the glass, being a musician to a lesser degree. Um, it, but it seems like had you not done those things, you would have probably been in a similar position as a lot of your friends. Yeah, I would have been miserable too. I have to say my life got a lot better when I uh, took control and diversified and started to do other things. <laughs> You know, the, a lot of it ha is the ADD mentality where it's hard to really concentrate on one thing and then you're off and you do this. I, I don't know how you are, but I am. I, I have a hard time staying in one particular lane for a long period of time. I can, and I have done in the past, but I feel better if I can work on this today and that tomorrow and something else the next day. So what I do now plays into that lifestyle much better. Uh, the other thing is... 
You know, if you can't make your own music, the next thing is make your own content. And I was having trouble making my own music and getting it heard and whatever. But when I started write books and everything, it it was a nice substitute. It's like, well, I can't do that, or I can, but it's not it's not fruitful to me. Mm-hmm. So I'll do this, and it is fruitful, and it and it feels good, and and I'll do this over here, and it's the same thing. So it worked better for me, you know, for sure. Unexpectedly, you know, you don't go into these things thinking it's going to work that way, but it has in my case. So I'm I'm grateful. Believe me, every day I get up and I think, well, I'm really. I can't wait to get started every day, and boy, how good is that, you know? Not everybody is geared towards writing books or doing some of the things you do. What's your perspective on that for for those that don't want to end up, as you're saying, like some of your friends now? There's two minds to this. The one mind is you should work on what you love and just keep on working on it and get it as good as you can. So, I mean, there is that, and there's some validity to that. The other is, well, you should have multiple things going on because you, you need them just in case, as in the music business, one thing is always going down and you want something else going up. So the big problem is finding what that diversification is because you don't want to work on something you don't like. So I, I, I can't really say other than for me i you know i can't give advice on something like that i wouldn't even know what to tell somebody for me it was from the standpoint that i became an accidental writer and i found out i liked it i mean i always could write but but i never thought of myself as a writer so when i found out i liked it then i kind of pursued it and i was lucky enough that people asked me to pursue it you know when you get magazine editors calling you up and saying hey can you do an article on this hey how about this EQ calling me up, hey, would you like to do our our speaker reviews? You know, you don't say no. I don't know what to say, Matt. Mm. I, I don't. I know what happened in my case. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, again, there's the ADD mentality where it's hard to stay focused on one thing. I don't know if that's good or bad for people, but, you know, I only know what worked for me. It's frustrating, too, you know, like if you're working on a project – that's taking a lot of time that may not financially produce much, maybe in the short term it won't, but maybe in the long term it will. But I've always had to juggle like, you know, here's a big budget project that you can do that can really help pay bills now and solve a lot of problems. It seems that those things always divert, have in the past have diverted my attention. Yeah. And then those projects that you get started on kind of go to the back burner and sometimes get forgotten for a, a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely happens. That's for sure. But you have to pay the bills. So <laughs> yeah. you do whatever you have to to pay the bills. That's what it all comes down to. You know, I mean, there's, there's the other part of it where if you're in this business and people are, are giving you work, asking you to work on their project and feel good enough about you to work on your project, you should be pretty thankful about that, whether you like what they're doing or not. And, you know, the the people that I know that are really good at this and continue to work regardless how old they are, they're like, um, they'll work on things and, and not have an opinion on what they're working on. In other words, it, it, if they like the music or not, does not, influence what they're doing how they're doing it so in other words i know a lot of people that are really good that you know continue to work and they'll take whatever job and it just doesn't matter to them you know whether they like the music or not because they're going to give their all which is the way you should be i I have to say yeah i i wish i could have been more like that in in my career as an engineer as a producer i always had to like the stuff so that was different but as an engineer i you know i took some jobs and i was I was sour. I was negative because of it. Yeah. And and unprofessional. I, you know, I, boy, I've gone through unprofessional things myself where I, I, I look back, I think back and I go, oh, yeah, it's embarrassing just because I didn't get on with the people or whatever. And you should bite your tongue and, but, and I didn't do it. So a lot of times I'll give advice to people and it's from, you know, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've always taken the approach that, as long as I like the people, I tend to do all right, regardless of the music, regardless of the quality of the music, or, um, you know, as long as the 
they're paying me to do a job. I've always looked at it as a service type thing, but you know, sometimes, sometimes it is hard to bite your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Now I, I have to say, uh, I just finished a project uh, not that long ago. It was uh, with the hard rock band Snoo. It was the fourth album I've done with them every, you know, two, three years we've been doing one. And, you know, again, I know enough now that if things are not going the way I think that I would like for them to be going, I I can pull my hat off and that hat and think as a musician and think, well, yes, but that's their vision. Their vision is to do that, and that's not my vision, so I have to facilitate that. So it took me a long time to actually learn that. I'm glad I finally did before I died. <laughs> Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. Talk to me a little bit about um, work-life balance for you in terms of, you know, family or relationships or just sanity. Uh, Do you find it hard to say no to work? Uh, Less so. And uh, I just turned down something very lucrative this morning. Funny you should mention. And it was because of time. There are some books I want to write, and I can't, and I haven't been able to. One of the reasons why is I was working on a project. The project I just told you about was supposed to be the, two months long, and it wound up being six months long. And not every day, of course, but just enough that it throws you off. And then to have some other commitments in there where you go, I just don't have time to do the things that I want and I think I should be doing. So uh, lately, I've been turning a lot of things down and saying, no, I, I just... I need the time to be able to work on the things I want to work on. Now, luckily, I'm in the position where the money doesn't matter as much as the time. Once upon a time, of course, that was just the opposite. It's like you got plenty of time and not enough money, so you got to work on whatever. <laughs> but now it's it's different, thankfully. So th- there is that. I, I'm I'm more cognizant on working on the things that I want to work on if that's what you mean. But I'm constantly working. I just came back on Monday. I was away for two and a half weeks. I went on a cruise, and I do this four times a year. But this one, it it was across the Atlantic Ocean, and it was two and a half weeks. But I worked every single day. Now, when I'm at home, I work 10 hours a day, maybe more. When I'm doing that, I'm working five hours a day or six hours a day. So there is a difference, but you know, blogs still have to be written and there's still the matter of customer service for my businesses and there's things like that. So in, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, 2,000 miles from any land, there's still satellite internet, thankfully, and I was still able to work. <laughs> and that was important. Frankly, if I, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have done it. It, it is interesting. I mean, I, I look at how my audio world has gone and I'm at a point where I could actually do what I do. I'm up in Northern California, and I could do what I do from anywhere at this point, yeah. as long as there's internet. That That's yeah. the linchpin. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. It, it's really important. I've been all over the world. I, well, I still do a lot of speaking, so I, you know, I'll, I'll go different places. But it's always important that, and I specify, I you know, what kind of connectivity do you have? It better be good or I'm not coming. And, and I was just on a 12-hour plane flight coming from Rome. No internet. Oh. And that was like torture. And and honestly, I had something that I had to get out. So I was nervous the whole time. So there are those times where you go, well, I just need this now. <laughs> I better be working. So it's the life we lead these days. I, I guess so. Although I will say that I, I have, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer in many respects. And one of the things that I'm late on is, uh, uh, what do they call it? Tethering, where you can oh, te- just yeah. use your phone to get internet. Now on a 12 hour flight, that 
that's a little bit of a challenge. Well, you can't do it because you don't have the cell tower. So, you, you know, you can't do it on your phone either. Um, one of the interesting things on a ship, they now have their own cell towers. So from the, I've been in the middle of the Atlantic, the middle of the Pacific, and I was able to have perfect conversations with people anywhere. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I know. What, what were you doing on, on, on the cruise? What kind of work were you doing? Uh, I was writing a book. Ah. Yeah, I wasn't working on the cruise per se. I wasn't there to work. Although the the thing that got me into it, I have to say, the very first one, I was asked to speak on a home theater cruise. And this was awesome because the people, and, and I had to do one three-hour panel, and I had a week's vacation for this one three-hour panel. The people on the panel were great. It was Phil Ramone, Al Schmidt, Elliot Shiner. Uh, off the top of my head, there's probably a couple other people. So, and, and they didn't understand that they could bring their wives. So they were just by themselves. So I hung with them the whole week and just heard these fantastic stories. So I was at that point, it's like, I'm going to do this a lot because I really like it. And, and hopefully they'll all be like this. Of course they weren't because those guys weren't there, but you know, that really got me into it. I have to say it was one of those things where it's like, Oh, I think I really like this. And like most, most musicians, I didn't take a vacation for 30 years. <laughs> zero none so it was like well okay now i can let me take some i'm working anyway so it's not really a vacation but let me just go off you know someplace being in california it's it, you know life is is fairly easy as you will know it's it's not bad at all but you know it's also nice to work in sydney or you know work in berlin or wherever you know just the change of scenery helps your mind a little yeah it helps me yeah it's not like you're stuck in the midwest buried in snow every day oh god if i never saw another snowflake i'd be perfectly happy <laughs> when you speak on any given topic you know pointing specifically to your podcast and where when you're informing your audience about you know whether it's a, a change of uh it could be anything from copyright law or spotify or whatever how, how do you get all of your information and and get it to to a point where you feel it's because you sound like an authority figure on it you know and many times some people can present information and it doesn't seem like they have the full story but you always seem to know exactly what the hell is going on so how do you pull together your information specifically for your podcast to present news type music world information well thank you matt i'm glad you feel that way um Makes me feel good. You know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, uh, just like my books, I know people that are a lot smarter than me. So I go to them and get the information. It's always been that way. I'm not the smart person. I'm the person that knows the smart people. Mm. So um, I'm lucky, lucky enough to know a lot of really smart people. Now, that being said, there's lots of really good sources as well. Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, um, uh, music business worldwide, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of other sources, billboard, especially billboard business where sometimes, you know, and it takes time. I'll read four or five or six articles and make a couple phone calls and then I'll kind of know, you know, lay the land. So if you think it's going to happen quickly or for me, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not something that I know you know, I can do in a flash. Unfortunately, that takes a lot of time. Like for my blogs, it's the first hour to two hours out of my day, every day writing that because that stuff doesn't come quickly. just doesn't. Yeah. If I'm going to do it well. So, you know, that, that's where it's coming from, Matt. It's, it's like the, there's lots of smart people out there and, and, you know, I try to tap into them. I know you've commented on, you know, where, how music is going and, and the state of the music industry with streaming. I've heard you talk about that. That's pretty well documented. In fact, I'll, I'll relate a story in a minute that will back up things you have said about this. But in particular in the recording space, um, what's your assessment of where we're at in the recording business and, you know, engineers, studios, et cetera, and where we're headed? Well, I'm not at all nostalgic, I have to tell you. When I look back at so-called the golden age of recording, of tape and big consoles, there were certainly some wonderful things, but I hated tape. I always hated it. So the idea of, of trying to get tape saturation to me is like, 
I, I hated it then. Why would I want it now? <laughs> That's me personally. Because it's like you'd listen to whatever coming off the console. You go, this sounds great. Then you you listen to the recording. You go, why does it sound different? So, you know, I never quite got this whole nostalgia for tape. And I did a project recently, by the way, where the artist insisted on going to tape. And it was the biggest pain in the ass in the world, I got to tell you. There were two things in particular. One was... As a producer, the band is really hot. And, okay, let's do another take. Oh, it's five minutes long, and we only have four minutes of tape. So we roll it off and roll another one on, and ten minutes later, the band is cool. Oh, so, you know, there, there's that. Oh, let's do another, you know, let's do one more vocal. Oh, there's no more tracks. It's like, oh, you know. So I, I, I'm not nostalgic for that. Uh, for Big Iron, for consoles, things like that, uh, there was a golden age where everything sounded terrific and we're not, you know, we've gone away from that. But that being said, boy, doing stuff in the box sounds terrific these days. And anybody that says you can't get a, you know, reasonable sound, it, you know, they're not doing it right. So when I look at the music business and the making of music business, I can only think I wish I were a whole lot younger because, wow, it's really vital. It's really progressing. There are new things that are happening. The, I was just had this conversation with um, a veteran jingle producer yesterday, and we're talking about how everything is a hybrid now, where once upon a time, you it was just musicians that had to play it, you know, play whatever it was, they had to play it down, and you had to get the best performances, and now it's a hybrid. Now you got loops that are going against musicians, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, that it's done so well that you don't even know anymore, you know, what's happening. So I'm I'm excited for the the music business where it's going for the recorded music business for for recording I I think it's you know we might have hit a doldrums there ten years ago when we're going the transition from analog to digital but you know digital is just dynamite these days and the things you can do with you know a three thousand dollar computer you know another couple grand of of plugins yeah. I would totally agree. I'm I'm an advocate for it, and I and I try to not, you know, <laughs> become uh, too biased about it. But you know, I'm a fan of 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 these digital workflows. You, you know what else? Let me just go back to one other thing here. You know, everybody talks about the old big iron consoles. Yeah, great. But the thing I I got to say, I hated console automation. I never liked it. There was always, it was always clunky. It was always, it always took too much time. And now in the workstation, you go in, you draw it in, it's there in a second, you know, or you make a change, it's done in a second. And, and it was never like that before. It's like, why would anybody want to go back to that? I don't get it. Well, everything old is new again. And I, I hear stories of, you know, people now embracing cassettes once again. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. just think, I guess each generation has to discover what was magical or what appears to be magical about the previous generation yeah. to, to better understand it and, and to appreciate it. I know that, um, you know, I have two kids, uh, 12 and, and soon to be 10. And there's, there's a fascination that they have with anything tangible. When we go to my visit, mm -hmm. my parents and my parents are loaded down with old VHS tapes, you know, the kids are like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. And you put it in and, it, and the film is on the tape. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, yeah, we're kind of past that down, guys. Oh, but this is so much cooler. Wow. I know. I'm First I heard of that. But, but again, what that does tell you, though, is everything in our business is a cycle. And we're going to cycle back around to a physical format at some point. I, I got to say something on that note. The physical... Uh, as I as I talk to you, I have an Avid Artist Mix to my right, and I have a Soft Tube console one to my left, and and I I do like that tangible thing mixed with the digital conveniences. And I think recently, actually, the TC the TC twenty two ninety where you've got the little box, yeah, where you can make the adjustments. Brilliant. I'm already like you know signed up to hear when it's ready to ready to fly off the shelves. I'm I'm interested to check that out. You know, again, we do like tactile things. That being said, you know, it's funny because when we were first going to In the Box, 
there were a lot of veteran mixers that would say, I just have to have faders. I just have to have faders. And we're 10 years down the road, and a lot of them are using a mouse and they're perfectly happy. And, and there are situations, of course, where you need lots of faders. They're, they're you know, recording and, and post situations where that's just, you can't get around it. That being said, in normal recording that we do, music recording, you know, we can do pretty good without that sometimes. Yeah, and then, of course, you hear folks like Andrew Shep's laptop mouse and a pair of sony 7506s making that work now i've been to andrew's house when he lived not too far from me yeah when he had when he had the dual uh neves he had a and he had an l and he had the wall the an eight foot wall of outboard gear and he told me that he was in the box and they needed a chili peppers uh record and they more or less demanded that he get this stuff. So then he was out of the box. And now he's back in the box again. And to him, I just talked to him not that long ago. He said, yeah, I'll make it sound good one way or the other. And, and Dave Pensato is the other guy. Talked to Dave every now and then. And Dave says, yeah, I can get 99% of the way there now. So, you know, everybody kind of feels pretty good about being in the box these days. And, and our perception of what works and what doesn't is a little different. For a while... You know, the, we had a reference point. Everything in, in recording is a reference point. And we had a, a reference point, well, this is the quality of sound that we have to get. It's way up here. And we weren't getting there, and it was really apparent. And now everything has kind of moved, where that old reference point is kind of gone because we don't listen to that music anymore. So our reference point is different of what we'll accept not saying it's better or worse, it's just different. Mm -hmm. You ask a mastering engineer, and, and they'll tell you for sure, you know, oh, well, it's brighter, and then, you know, we do this, and they don't care about distortion anymore, and, you know, all this stuff. And and it's just different. But, you know, that's to be expected. That's the way our business goes. Yeah. We, we, we evolve. So you have to be, uh, you have to be into evolving if you're going to survive in this business because it's going to go with or without you. And I, and I know that we both actually have interviewed Billy Decker in Nashville talking about mixing in the yeah. box and his whole business of, you know, mixing a, uh, these hit songs in a couple hours. I, that caught my attention immediately and his whole template system and, and all that. It's, it's a fascinating world that we're in at this point. And I, I just, I wonder how this goes down for pro audio manufacturers i mean we're we've got i mean microphones are, are, are a necessary thing of course but how much outboard gear can be sold you know in in a given time uh yeah but those companies are actually doing pretty well uh, and they're doing well because of uh sound reinforcement ah. still selling that for sound reinforcement a lot, and also, many of those companies that did outboard gear have evolved, so now they do a lot for permanent sound installations as well. So, you know, there's a, a lot of things that are, that, you know, they've kind of seen the, the writing on the wall. So things have changed, uh, you know, for everybody, but not necessarily in a bad way. You know, it, it's funny. I'm sitting here. I have an 1176 sitting here that I, I'm not using, and it was part of my signal chain. They took it out. Because it was noisy. It was making me crazy. It sounded good, but it was noisy. And I couldn't get around the noise. And I thought, you know, I'm going to deal with that not having it. So it's been sitting here for a while now. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I should probably get rid of it because I'm not using it. I have two other ones that, are, you know, in, in a rack when I need them. I'm not using those often either. So you go and you start to think, I really like somebody that's using it all the time to use it rather than it just sitting here, you know, and the cap's drying out and all that stuff in the meantime. Oh, yeah. Are you saying that the pro audio manufacturers are also having to adapt, change, uh, diversify in some respects in what they do? Well, from what I can tell, and I do have them on my podcast, I do speak with them often, uh, and various ones from various places. A lot of them are my, my buddies go out and have lunch and I always ask, so how's business? What's going on? What are you selling? What's slow? What's, you know, who's selling it? Just in the course of, of a conversation, because uh, I'm curious. And, you know, they're all adapting. 
if they're staying in business, they're adapting, and 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 most of them are doing better than even they expected, in some ways. Even microphone manufacturers, and you think, wow, there are so many mics that are out there now that all kind of do the same thing. You know, they're all based on the same vintage ones that we all so loved. But, well, microphone is one of those things that I have to say, you don't buy just one or two or five. <laughs> you know, you, you can keep on buying them. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a different thing. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio, who not only help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible, but they make some incredible microphones at working class prices. So check them out. They're at roswellproaudio.com. And if you want to really help the cause, when you check out, there's a discount box. Make sure that you use the code WCA free ship when you're checking out and you'll get free shipping. And that'll let them know that you heard about them on Working Class Audio. That's roswellproaudio.com. Let me talk to you a little bit about studio ownership and what you know about that from your conversations. In terms of the long term for studio ownership, it seems that uh, if you're in a market where the real estate is hot, uh, you're kind of walking a tightrope because ultimately uh, developers will come in and convince the building owner to to sell. And then next thing you know, it's high rise condos. Uh, So What's your perspective on, on studio ownership, not just in California, but across the country and maybe in, in the world? What have you seen? What have you observed? Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Matt. The um, the real estate values are such that you can't possibly charge enough to be in one of the hot places in a, in a city. You can't charge enough per hour to justify it because studio prices are not going up no matter what, nor they should. Well, and then the other thing is, how often do you need a real studio? So most people can have their own studio and get and accomplish, you know, at least 80% of what they need. That being said, real studios are never going away. Here's, this is something before I even get into it. When I talk to studio designers, these guys are busier than ever, which would make you think, who's building these and, and where and why? But people are building real studios. I'd have to say... A lot of them are vanity projects. You know, you get Paul Allen who will build his own studio because he has, you know, so much money. And, and and there's a lot of people like that that, well, let's build a studio. Of course, you get celebrity musicians. They'll do the same thing. Post uh, houses are still building studios. Colleges are building studios. And that breaks my heart that that's happening. Um, and I think it's because you got the money, you better spend it or you're not going to have it next year or one of those things. But there are still, you know, real commercial studios that are being built. In California and Hollywood here, most of them are holding their own. And again, in talking with many of the studio managers, they're optimistic. Their projects don't last as long as they used to. So they're happy if they get a week or two booking where, you know, it used to be a couple months or six months or whatever, someone would lock out. And and now we're talking more in weeks and days. But there's enough of them going on that they're still, they're still staying open. The the one that will probably go away in Hollywood is Ocean Way mm. because Ocean Way was bought by Gower Studios next door. Gower's a big independent film studio. And they've always had eyes on it for additional parking. So that it's only a matter of time before that happens. Wow. And, and that'll be a shame if that happens. Yeah, but and it will. Uh, but most of the other ones are holding their own. I mean, Capitol's always going to be there because it's, it's a historical site, site now, so that'll always be there. East-West is still doing, and Cello, they're still doing okay. Henson, Henson is not the way it used to be, but it's still busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henson used to be the old A&M, and I spent a lot of time at A&M back in the day and it was pretty fantastic it, it's not the same way anymore but it's still pretty good I, I'll, I'll give you an example how, how good it used to be i remember doing a session there there were four big studios in it and i'd come out in the studio and i'd go in the lounge and there'd be lionel richie and we'd hang and have a conversation and i remember going and playing pinball real pinball machines back then and someone say hey can i play with you yeah no problem it's joni mitchell <laughs> you, you know 
so I, and you'd have stuff like that happening all the time. And everybody laments that, that that's gone. I have to say, when I talk to veteran engineers that have gone through that, that's the one thing that everybody says, God, I wish we had more of that. The camaraderie, the, the interplay between sessions that would happen, the people that you would meet. And, and of course, we don't have those big facilities anymore, so we, we don't have, or we have few of those, so we don't have that much anymore. Uh, another big studio is doing well, Conway. Conway out, out here, three big studios in it, and they're doing really well. So there, there is enough work. Now we're talking Hollywood. You kind of expect it. but the, and, and again, we're talking high-end work where people are spending a good amount of dough per day. Yeah. So in Hollywood, it's holding its own. Can it afford new studios? Can, will new ones be built? Probably not. So uh, yeah, other than the ones that people are having in their homes. Well, and it, and, and it seems that when you talked about the, the, the week-long bookings or the, you know, the, maybe the weekender bookings, it seems that the MO these days is to get in, use the studio for what you need to use the studio for, get out, and go back to the home studios to finish up overdubs and mixing and uh, and then you know mastering that too is also seeing you know a, a drive towards i think uh, the home studio that being said i again talking to a lot of the big mastering engineers they're busy yeah you know they're 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 busy although now it's not so much record uh record label driven as it is indie driven so th- th- that has changed and also, a lot of the, the big mastering houses are getting much more work over, from overseas than they have before. What's interesting, you know, in all facets of the business except tracking, you, there are fewer people attending. So a mixing session, you, you hardly ever see people in the mix anymore. Certainly in mastering, it's not as prevalent as it used to be. You know, they'll do 50 60% more maybe mm-hmm. without someone attending and you know if if you're the engineer there that's a breath of fresh air <laughs> everybody <laughs> likes that it's like oh yeah just let me do it on my own give me my space um yeah it's right. it's sad to hear you talk about uh ocean way th- that possibility you talked about ocean way you also talked about the community of like running into like lionel richie i have a fond memory in my early 20s of um working at ocean way i was in a band and a guy named Larry Hirsch was producing us. And I took a walk down the hall and I see this woman at the end of the hallway. I need to go to the bathroom and the bathroom's up ahead on the left or on the right, actually. And I see this woman and I, as she comes into view. It becomes very clear that it's Dolly Parton having a conversation in the hallway. And I needed to go to the bathroom to the right just before her. And I was so freaked out that it was Dolly Parton that as I got closer, she turned around and went, well, hello, and took me by surprise. And I very rapidly, you know, just was like, hi, ducked into the bathroom and was like, wow, that was Dolly Parton. That, that's crazy. And yeah, those kind of interactions, uh, I could see easily why people can look back on the old days of things and kind of go man that that's just not happening as much yeah yeah it's real shame that was a a very cool part of the business i don't know how much it actually helped the recording but it you know certainly the personality part the 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 interactive part with your contemporaries was really nice you spend a, a lot of time talking with a lot of people and gathering a lot of information about our world uh every day yeah every day i mean part of it is the fact that i'm i'm writing every day i'm writing blogs if nothing else so that requires me to learn something new every day usually mm-hmm. so it's it's gathering that information in order to write it uh and then you know there's books and podcasts and all that other stuff so that's what i do hmm. it's just a, a matter of course of what i do do you wake up and think i need to learn more about this particular topic i've heard you know a little bit about this and then do you just dig deep into that one topic sometimes sometimes it's it's a curiosity it's like i don't know anything about that i let me find out let me find out more sometimes it's i i i know enough about it but wait there are some things i'm not sure about let me find out more Mm. you know it could be any number of things and then there are some times where it's like what the hell am i going to write today (laughs) 
know, <laughs> let, me, let me let me find something, and then it's kind of searching through, you know, things I've collected, ideas I've collected, and going, oh, okay, well, there's there's something. So that some it, it varies every day. For the listener, once again, it's bobbyosinski.com. You should check out uh, where that's kind of you know a hub for most things that Bobby's up to. Uh, he's got a couple blogs, Bobby's music production blog and uh, music 3.0 industry blog. But you know, you're everywhere, man. Everywhere I turn, you're, you're there. And that's a, that's, you know, it's, it's nice. It's like, Oh, there's Bobby. He's let's hear what he has to say on this topic. Uh, sometimes I'm there without knowing. And <laughs> I have to, honestly, it, it's, people will take things from my blogs or from Forbes. I write for Forbes too. Um, they'll take things and I won't even know. Now that being said, they've asked for permission. And after a while they've asked so much, I just say, just take whatever you want. You know, just, just do it. Make sure you you attribute it to me and, and that's okay. So that's happened so often that I'll hear from someone say, yeah, I just read your, your whatever there. And I'll go, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know it was there. I mean, it happens every week. So uh, it, it's good and bad, but it's a surprise to me sometimes. <laughs> That's cool. Um, also, before I go, I mentioned I was going to bring up an example uh, to highlight a point uh, I've heard you make online about um, the change of the music industry and streaming and how s- those that uh, there's there's some that are a f- uh, claim that the industry is you know in great turmoil and it's it's just not like it, it ever was or it's or it's not going to be the same as it ever was and it's usually not necessarily the musicians that are saying that I, and i'm paraphrasing here about a, a bit but point is is i have a client as of right now that uh came to me uh to master a record and i hadn't seen him in a long time and i said what's new how you know how you're, how are your kids your wife and the music what's go- what's going on and he goes well it's a funny thing uh my wife and i did this french record and uh we got a, a call from a friend of ours who works at pandora to say hey um just so you know you know you're kind of getting a little bit of uh, uh play on pandora um you might want to think about signing up for sound exchange you know just in case there's any royalties out there for you and he was like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks for the tip. So they sign up for Sound Exchange. Uh, about three weeks later, a check for $10,000 shows up from Sound Exchange because they were getting a lot of play on Pandora. And then after that, it's turned into about $2,000 a month in checks. Oh, uh, yeah. Because to their utter astonishment and, 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 they were getting played in not only Pandora, but Spotify and all these places. And I think some music actually even showed up in like a cooking show. And uh, so this guy uh, who's now an empty nester, his kids are off to college. He and his wife are uh, actually having music pay them money in this mm. day and age. And they're in direct control of all the masters. It's a, it's a wonderful situation. He told me, and I was, I was just thrilled. It was yeah. great story to hear. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things that I try to impart is that the business that we're in now with streaming is a good thing for musicians and songwriters. What and what started to happen was you got people that didn't understand how it all worked saying, I got 3 million plays and I only made $30. That's my uh, songwriter in particular I'm thinking of. So the average musician, artist, songwriter looks at that and says, well, that's not right, without knowing the whole situation. The, but see, what you don't understand is, well, it could have been six other writers <laughs> that you know split that amount. And then, of course, it was split with the publishing company. And three million in the grand scheme of things is nothing. See, our our, our perception of what's a lot is different. In the physical days, a million was a lot. In the digital days, a million is hardly on the radar. When we hit 10 million of something, that, that, that's sort of on the radar. A minor hit is 50 million. When you hit 500 million, you're talking a major hit. So everything hit is, is exploded, it's bigger. The numbers are all bigger. 
But when you're saying, well, I got a million and I only got this. Well, yeah, a million isn't that much. So that's the very first thing. The next thing is you got to look at the deal that you have because if you have a deal that's paying you 8% and the record company's going, you know, has 92% of, of your income there, usually wouldn't happen on a digital side, but, you know, just saying. Then, you know, obviously there's a lot of money that was made. You didn't make it. <laughs> that's the problem. So th there's more to the story than everybody thinks. And the other thing is people don't understand how streaming works. The fact that there are multiple tiers, the paid tier pays a whole lot more, like a whole lot more than, than the free tier. So if you have more free tier streams, then you're not making as much. So there's all of these factors that go into it that most artists, songwriters are not familiar with. So then streaming gets a bad rap as a result with, People saying, well, you can't make any money because I'm only getting a fraction of a cent. Well, as your story just illustrated, yeah, there's money to be made there. People are making great deals of money. You just have to understand the situation. Yeah. When I, when I heard your comments, it was a video that I heard uh, talking about, you know, I think you were talking about Music 3.0, and you highlighted this point. I was like, Psh. Bobby called yeah. it, and here's, here's proof right here of, of this client of mine, so... As I've said before, it's an honor to have you on. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So um, thanks again. It's great to chat with you. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. I really do appreciate it. All right. So check out bobbyosinski.com. Bobby Osinski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Bobby's a great resource, and I definitely encourage you to stop on by his website, bobbyosinski.com, and check out the Inner Circle podcast. It's a great, great show. Uh, before we go today, I want to encourage you to stop by and thank, of course, our sponsors that help make Working Class Audio possible. I'm talking about Roswell Pro Audio, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Gearsluts.com. And of course, we have to thank everybody involved here that helps make the podcast possible. And I'm talking about Cliff Truesdale and Chuck Smith. And I want to thank our friends over at the License Lab for helping us out with some of the music as well. And I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate the time you're taking each week to listen to me ramble. And, and I hope you continue to spread the word for us as well. Until then, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.